You know, every Sunday I think, man, it just can't get much better than that. And then we come back the next Sunday and it's better than that. So, incredible. How many of y'all have a favorite t-shirt that you just like to wear over and over again, right? You might have 20 shirts in your closet, but there's that one t-shirt that is so soft, it's so comfortable, you just kind of keep going back after it, time after time after time. But as you know, I uh, have one of my favorites. I don't know if the Scarboroughs are here, but it's uh, the Flying Banners t-shirt. Man, I love that shirt. But even those favorite shirts over time, they wear thin, they get holes in them, and they just need to be retired. But if you're like me, you kind of have a sentimental attachment to them, so you can't just throw them away. In our house, they go into the rag drawer. Does anybody have a rag drawer? Okay, that's where t-shirts go to die. That's what that is. But old t-shirts are great. When you're washing your car, they can, they're good at cleaning your windows, right? Or when you make a spill, they clean it up. I know when I change the oil, I like to use an old t-shirt to wipe my hands off from the oily hands. And so uh, they're good for all kinds of things, even when you're not wearing them anymore. But the fact of the matter is, eventually, they just get to be an oily, dirty mess, and they just have to be thrown away. Well, I tell you that because in our passage this morning, that's Paul's primary question as it relates to the nation of Israel. Is God done with them? And will he throw them away? You see, they've been set apart as God's chosen people. They are the nation through whom the, the promised Messiah will come. But they have rebelled against God. And they have chosen to, to go their own way. And they have rejected that Messiah that has come forth. And so like that old t-shirt, will God finally set them aside and pull out something new and different? And Paul says no. No. That is not possible because God made a promise to his people. And as Bonnie reminded us this morning, God's word does not fail. Even though many in Israel failed to follow God's word. But Paul wants us to understand a really important truth. He wants us to understand that God does not reject those he promises to protect. Now, that's incredibly important for the nation of Israel, and it's important for you and I as well. So let me say that again. God does not reject those he promises to protect. See, God made a covenant promise to Abraham. It, it was a unilateral, unconditional promise, which means no one can alter what God promised he would do. And God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. And that that nation would have a land in which they would occupy, which, by the way, they have not completely fulfilled that promise to date. But in addition to a land that they would have a blessing and that they would become a blessing to the entire world because it was through the nation of Israel that the Messiah would be born. And even though Israel's past is stained with rebellion and unbelief, God will not cast them aside. God will sovereignly protect a remnant who believe. Even in the generation that existed at the time of the Messiah, there were Jewish people who courageously chose to follow Christ. 
And that remnant of Jewish Christians exists until this day. In fact, there's one that has been sent out from this church family, Gary Morris, who continues his ministry as a Jewish Christian to Orthodox Jews in Atlanta. Because we believe, he believes, God has not finished what he promised Israel he would do. And even though our passage focuses primarily on the nation of Israel, I want us to know there are plenty of things that apply directly to you and me. Because if God doesn't keep his word to Israel, how can we be certain that he keeps his word to us? But we can be assured because God does not reject those he promises to protect, whether that's the nation of Israel or me and you. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to keep that truth in mind. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word, we need to be reminded of the truth that you do not reject those you promise to protect, that we are secure in you and your commitment to preserve us, that you who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you don't make our, our salvation dependent upon what we must do, but instead what you have done on our behalf. And as you said on the cross, it is finished. So may we rest in that and learn more of that assurance as we look at your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 11. As Paul continues speaking primarily to the nation of Israel. And let's see what he says beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying in verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, Paul starts this section with a fair question in light of what he said in the previous verses. You'll remember last week, Paul continues to confront Israel's unbelief. You see, they've had this abundance of knowledge about the promised Messiah, and yet many of them still don't believe. God has literally stretched out his hands for them. And yet, they have gone their own way. So the question is, if Israel has rejected God, does that mean God will reject Israel? It's a fair question. And Paul gives a clear answer. May it never be. He never has. He never will. Because his word does not fail. Paul knows that this is true because of his own experience. He's a Jew. He's a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And there was nothing about his life personally that deserved God's mercy. He even admitted that in his own words. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes and says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. See, because Paul had turned his back on God, just like the Israelites are doing at that time. He had depended on his own performance to achieve righteousness instead of relying on a Savior to forgive his sins. And so when Paul is speaking to the Israelites, he's speaking out of his own experience. He's been there. Paul is saying, God didn't reject me despite my rebellion. and Therefore, he will not reject you. But Paul reminds them that God has always done his work through a remnant. So his point there is if you're following the crowd, then you're probably going the wrong way. I mean, listen to what Jesus said about this when he writes in, or when it's written in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Once again, if you're choosing to follow the crowd, you need to understand you are going the wrong way. Paul then points to Elijah to make his point. You see, Elijah is frustrated because he's convinced he's the only one left in Israel who still believes and has not chosen to rebel. In this context, he's alone hiding in a cave, literally afraid for his life because Queen Jezebel has made a threat to hunt him down and kill him. And if you know anything about Queen Jezebel, she's done it plenty of other times. This would be no exception. He has every right to be afraid. But this is just icing on the cake because Elijah's whole ministry was filled with disappointment. So he really kind of reaches a point where he says, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I would rather die than continue to confront Israel in their unbelief. And so for 40 days, Elijah hid, afraid in this cave, while God miraculously sustained him. And then one day, God came and he spoke to him, and he asked this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's response is in verse 3 of our passage. Look at what he says. Lord, this is why I'm here. They have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. God listens to what he says and essentially helps Elijah understand that's not true. His response is in verse 4 of our passage where he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God always has preserved a remnant, men and women who refuse to compromise, people who are willing to take God at his word and believe that God's word is true, no matter what is happening in the world around them. 
Look at how he continues in verse 5. Where he says, beginning in verse 5, In the same way then, there, are, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So after using the example of the remnant that remained during the time of Elijah, Paul makes the point that that remnant still exists during his day as well. And not because they earned God's favor, it's because they are recipients of God's grace. But he makes the point that's the way it's always been. God's people, the chosen nation of Israel, has always been chosen based on God's grace and mercy and love, not on their performance. That's why Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, speaking of Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. Now, that's the promise made to Abraham. And he's saying, because of that promise, the Lord has brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, God's choice, Paul is trying to help us understand, that God's choice is based on his promise, not on our performance. They were set apart according to his divine purpose. They were central to his plan of redemption, but they did nothing to earn God's favor. They were recipients of God's grace. And Paul goes on to explain it can't be on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. In other words, grace, by definition, is God's unmerited favor, which means you can't do anything to earn it. Not only that, if God is responding to our good deeds, he's no longer in control. He's responding to what we do instead of us responding to what he's done. You know what grace does? Grace says God is in control. And, and we respond to what he has done. He has taken the initiative because of his great love and mercy towards us. His decisions are always determined by his promises, not by our performance. His choices are made in regards to his divine purpose and his redemptive plan. His grace is a gift that we must receive, not a reward that we can earn. I want you to think of it this way. Think about what it would be like if you raised your kids based on merit. Okay? Think about that. What that would mean is that you would punish them for everything they did wrong and you would only love them when they chose to do what was right. And so your affection would be based on their performance. So let me ask you, how would they respond? Who would they become? Any obedience would be out of compliance, not out of trust. Oh, but grace is very different. Grace is what allows you to love them for who they are, not what they do. Grace is what allows them to trust you 
because they know you have their highest good in mind. And they even understand, maybe not in the moment, but in time, that the discipline is even for their protection. That's what grace does. This is the picture that Paul wants Israel to understand about God's love for them. God's grace is a gift that they receive, not a reward that they can earn. He wants them to rely on God's promise and not depend on their performance. Look at how he continues in verse 7. He says, What then? What Israel is seeking and has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their back forever. Now, as we talked about last week, sometimes when we read passages like this, it's a little bit confusing because we only see a single verse that Paul chooses to quote out of the Old Testament. But we need to understand that the audience that he was speaking to would have known the full context from which that verse was taken. So it's important for us to understand the same when we read them as well. And the key to understanding this section really is in verse 7. Because Paul just got through explaining that grace was a gift that they had to receive and not a reward that they could earn. And yet, that's what many in Israel were still trying to do. Paul says in verse 7, what they are seeking, they have not. In fact, they cannot obtain. So the question is, what are they seeking? Paul actually answered that question. If you can go back to Romans chapter 9, look at verse 31. And this is what they were seeking. Paul says in verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. So here they are. They're trying to pursue something that they cannot obtain. And he explains why in verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. See, Israel is trying to achieve righteousness through religious compliance. They're trying to be right before God because of things that they do for God. Earning God's favor instead of receiving God's grace. In essence, really putting God in their debt instead of being indebted to God. Paul then quotes from Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 29. So let me read that to you in its context. Deuteronomy chapter 29. I'm going to begin in verse This is what it says. It says, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. That's the quote. It goes on and says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. So this is written, as, Paul, as Moses is speaking, at the end of Israel's wilderness wanderings, right before they enter into the promised land. They've spent the last 40 years wandering around in the wilderness while God miraculously provides for them. 
Their clothes haven't worn out. Their sandals haven't worn out. They've always had provisions of food and water miraculously in the desert. And the only reason they're there in the first place, don't miss this, the only reason they're there in the first place is because they believed the ten spy majority instead of the two spy remnant who truly believed God's word. So Paul is drawing a connection between the Israelites in the wilderness and the Israelites in his day because many of them are still wandering in the wilderness of unbelief. There is a remnant, however, that does believe that Jesus is Messiah, but most of them have rejected him. And yet God is so patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God has fulfilled his promise through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But despite his miraculous provisions, just like we see in the desert, many are choosing not to believe. Even though God has extended his arms of grace to everyone, only those who seek righteousness by faith will be saved. Only those who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah will enter into the promised land. The others, Paul says, will be hardened by sin as they continue to wander in the wilderness of unbelief. Paul follows that with a quote from Psalm 69. You'll recognize some of the words of this psalm because it's a messianic psalm. And I want you to listen as I begin reading in verse 20. It says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Think about the cross. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. Those are some strong words, aren't they? But in their context, this is a psalm of lament. And David is lamenting on the fact that many in Israel had rejected him as God's anointed king. And the Jews would have understood this context. They would have known about Israel's sin in the time of David when they rejected him as God's anointed king. And Paul is making the connection because he wants them to know you're doing it again. In the same way that you... Uh, rejected God's anointed king, you are now rejecting God's anointed Messiah. In fact, Jesus is a fulfillment, fulfillment of God's promise that he made to King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, when your days are complete, God's speaking to David, he says, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He goes on in verse 16 and says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And it's important to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise because he alone reigns over an eternal kingdom. 
He is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the eternal King, the fulfillment of that promise God made to David. Jesus knew that. Because in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, as he's just beginning his ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But just as many in Israel rejected David as God's anointed king, many in Israel were still rejecting Jesus as God's anointed Messiah. Look at how it continues in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now in their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul says Israel has stumbled in unbelief, but they will not fall from God's grace because there is a remnant who believes. And the rejection of the majority has created an opportunity for the Gentiles. He's actually using the expansion of the gospel for the benefit of Israel. He's not casting them off. He's inviting them home. Here's where Paul looks forward to a future fulfillment. He says, if so many are being blessed by Israel's rejection, then how much more by Israel's belief? See, Paul is relying on God's promise. He knows that God is not done with what he promised Israel he would do. And there are great and glorious things yet to come. Paul wants to be faithful to his ministry to the Gentiles, but his heart goes out to his fellow countrymen, the Jews. He wants the faith of the Gentiles to, to provoke them to unbelief. I mean, excuse me, to belief. It reminds me of a strategy that we would employ with our boys when they were young. Let's say we were sitting down and one of them refuses to eat their meal while the other one cleans their plate at dinner. Well, you know what comes after dinner, right? Dessert. So we'd go into the freezer and pull out that bright blue raspberry popsicle and we'd give it to one of the boys knowing that it was the other one's favorite and we would let him just chow down on that bad boy in hopes that in seeing the goodness with what his brother had, he would be willing to finish his dinner so could he could have one too, right? It's the same idea here. Israel is wandering in the wilderness of unbelief. They have rejected God's anointed. They have denied their need for a Savior. So maybe, just maybe the blessing of God being poured out on the Gentiles will help them understand just how much they are missing. Instead of earning God's favor and working for righteousness, they might receive God's gift of grace. That's the only way. And they would know this. That's the only way that the Gentiles are being saved. Why? Because they don't have the law. They don't have it. That's not why they're being saved. And God never gave Israel the law for them to be saved either. He gave them the law to expose their sin 
and reveal their need for a Savior. Israel has not been rejected. They are being invited to believe. And so, as we consider this passage this morning, I want us to consider how it does apply to you and I. It's admittedly challenging when you have a passage like this that is directed so clearly to the nation of Israel. And I, and I want to be clear, I do not want to take anything away from that promise that God will protect a remnant in Israel. It was important during that time, it's important during this time, and when we talk about things yet to come in end times theology, it's incredibly important for that as well. So we don't need to reject that at all. But I do want to try to make a correlation to how this passage might relate to us in our world today. Because I do believe, just like Israel during their day, we too in our day are facing apostasy right here in our own country. In fact, I read a quote this morning from Tim Keller. He was drawing a comparison. It was very interesting to me. He said, during the Roman Empire, they said this. They said, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities. And then he makes a correlation to the modern West and says, this is what they say similarly. You Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities identities. It's the same thing. It's the same issue. And yet, there are so many people in our world today who claim to be Christians, but I can assure you there are few who have truly surrendered their life to Christ. The reason I know that is because like Israel, many are customizing their faith so that their beliefs comply with their personal convictions. They pick and choose what they want to believe out of the Bible to fit what the life they want to live. It was the same then as it is now. And I'm con personally convinced, and this is just my opinion, but I feel strongly about it, and that is that persecution will be our defining moment. That's when the remnant will be revealed in our culture. But here's the good news. Just in the same way that God protected the remnant during his time, he will protect that same remnant during our time as well. He will not reject those he promises to protect. So let me encourage you with that in mind. Let me encourage you to stand strong in the promise of eternal security. Knowing that nothing, we learn this right in Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are protected by his promise, not by your performance. This is who you are. You are one in whom Christ, in whom Christ dwells and delights. You belong to the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. That's who you are. So be strong in the security of your salvation and be committed to our unity. Listen to how Paul says it when he writes to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And you need to know that when Paul wrote those words, he was writing them to the remnant of Christians that lived during that time. 
And he was helping them understand that you can only stand firm when you choose to stand together. Christians were created for communities. You see, the Christian faith is not an individual assignment. It is a group project, right? And we only grow in our faith when we grow together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So mark my word, one of the ways in which the enemy will work in order to disrupt what God is doing is he will isolate us. He will try to separate us. And we must refuse. We must gather together. We must form deep bonds of community because when persecution comes, and it will, that's the way we will endure. So be strong in your security. Be committed to our unity. And then finally, be sincere in your joy. You see, how can our faith be attractive if our life is miserable? Right? Even in our difficulties, we need to be able to demonstrate the joy of the Lord. And I understand that's not easy, but that's why we need each other. It makes me think of people like David Jaquis. And if you know David, he's one of the missionaries that have been sent out from our church family. And he's been battling cancer for some time now, although there's been some remarkable news as of late. But I would love reading his updates. One, because I was praying for him and I wanted to know how he was doing. But I was always encouraged by them. Because even when the news got worse and worse, his faith got stronger and stronger. And in the midst of all of his letters, he always said, without exception, God is in control, and we will rest in him. And I needed to hear that. I think we should spend less time trying to change other people's behavior. Instead, give them a reason to believe. Give them a reason to believe. You are the remnant in a culture of unbelief. So be strong in your security. Be committed to our unity. And be sincere in your joy. The Lord does not reject those he promises to protect, and that includes you. So stand together, one spirit with one mind, striving together for faith in the gospel. Amen? Let me pray for us, and we'll close in song. Father, thank you for this promise. Boy, do we need to hear this. And Lord, I do pray for all of us that even though there's plenty of things that are messy in our world today, for most of us, we're still fairly comfortable. Life is pretty good. And so it's easy to be lulled to sleep. And we need to hear words of truth to wake up our spirit So that not only are we prepared for what you are doing right now, but we are being prepared for what is yet to come. We need to be assured of the salvation that we have in you because of a gift of grace and not as a work of our performance. That we are secure because of your promise. We need to be reminded of how important our unity is. When everything is being fractured, we should be strengthened in our bonds of peace and joy in you. So help us to encourage each other even more as the day draws near. And today is one day closer to your return. We rejoice in that truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. That's good news. 
you know, those words are familiar because they're spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You know why he was weeping? Because he was speaking to a people who wouldn't believe. And yet, the message of God to those people is that my mercies are new every morning. Every morning. So let me just encourage you, no matter where you are at in this moment, because look, we fail, we stumble, we fall. And there are times when we are in those places where we wonder, was it just one time too many? Let me give you your answer. No. His mercies are new every morning. Not because of your faithfulness, but because of His. So let me encourage you to do something this week. As you know, Brian and I try to be very intentional about the songs that we sing together. We want them to line up as best as possible to what his word is saying. And so the last song that we sang, he gave me three different songs with the lyrics. And I read through this song, very familiar old hymn, right? And the words were just incredible with how they line up so beautifully with what we just looked at this morning. So here's my encouragement to you. Take some time this week, just Google it, okay? Great is thy faithfulness. Look at the words of this song, and I would encourage you just to take those words, meditate on them. Turn them into prayers of thankfulness because what they say about how God looks at you. They are incredible. You'll be blessed by them. Please do that this week, okay? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, even when we are faithless. Thank you for continuing to invite us back into that relationship with which we were created for, with open arms, full of grace. May we run to you because we realize there is no place that we can find security other than the security that we have in you. May we stand together in a bond of peace and may we live with joy even in the midst of difficulty so that we are not trying to change other people's behavior but we are giving them a reason to believe. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.